Well, we are coming up to where we're starting a new series, but we're not qu there quite yet. And so as we talked as elders, I had asked the question, what are some things that you think would be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time talking about? Maybe things that we haven't touched on for a while or just things that would be particularly helpful at this point in time. And one of the things that we talked about was baptism. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, before I get started, I have a question. Uh, what is that? What is it? A football. Now, I was going to bring one this morning, but I forgot. And so Grayson helped me out. And uh, what is this? This is not a trick question. It's a football, right? Okay. Um, what do you do with a football? You can throw it. What else? Catch it. You can do what? Hand it off, right? And once it gets handed off, once the quarterback hands it off, what does the next guy do with it? Run and he carries it, right? Good. What does the punter do with it? Kick. Okay. Grayson, you willing to help me out this morning? Okay, we don't usually do stuff like this. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but come on up right up here. Okay. You take this. I want you to demonstrate one of those, not kicking. Um, can you throw it to me? Okay, very good. That was a good throw. He threw the football to me. Now, can you throw this one to me? Go ahead. You, are you having a little trouble? Why? It's not real. It's not real. What is this? It's a picture. Thank you. You did a good job. You can sit down. This is... A picture of a football. Now, when I asked, what is this? I only had one brave soul who actually answered out loud, but all of you thought it's a football, right? Because the image is so closely associated with the real thing that we can even just refer to it as the real thing. Sometimes in scripture, you have word pictures, for instance, baptism, that is a picture of something, but it gets referred to as if it's the thing itself. So you'll have Peter writing and he'll refer to baptism, which now saves you. Well, baptism doesn't save you. That becomes clear as you read the rest of scripture, but it's so closely associated with the thing that it represents that he can even talk about it that way. Just like I could say, this is a football. It's, it's the same idea. I want to get that out of the way just kind of to set the, the, the foundation, set the tone this morning. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to talk about baptism. And I want to distinguish between Jesus' baptism and Christian baptism because they're different. Okay, Jesus gets baptized, but it's not the same thing as when his followers get baptized. So we're going to distinguish those things. And what I want to do is I want to just give you, we're going to turn to like seven different passages that talk about baptism read them, and make a few quick observations. And what you're going to see is there's a pattern that emerges of things that are present when baptism is happening, what baptism signifies or represents. And so there's three things in particular that we're going to see in each of these passages. And then I'm going to kind of just put one word out there that summarizes all three of them. And that's, what, that's the main idea of what I want to get across. Now, along the way, I'm also going to take three brief side trips. Okay, so a pattern of three things, 
with one main idea and three side trips along the way. That's the plan this morning, so you know where we're going. All right, so let's start then by looking at Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Now, again, it's totally fine to have your Bible on your phone or whatever, but I like to have the paper version in front of me because sometimes I want to see the context and it's easier to flip around and see what's going on around it when you have the pages there in front of you. That's not an absolute rule. It's just a recommendation. Matthew chapter 3 and verses 13 to 17 is what we want to take a look at. But before we do that, let me just set the context here. We're talking in the book of Matthew about the arrival of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the way that Matthew typically refers to it. So in the beginning of chapter 3, you have John the Baptist comes on the scene. Chapters 1 and 2, we have the birth narrative and, and the childhood of Jesus. But when we hit chapter 3, we're fast forwarding to where Jesus is now an adult. John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare the way. And in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, John's out preaching in the wilderness and his main message as he does this in those verses you see is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the kingdom is here. And as he does that, he goes on to talk about the judgment that is going to fall because Jesus has arrived with the kingdom. And so he warns like the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? The kingdom of heaven is arriving, and that means there's wrath coming. And so there's a response that's called for. And so what John is calling people to do is to respond in repentance. And if they do, then the outward sign for, for John is that he's baptizing them according to this message of repentance. And so um, verses 11 and 12, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is about to come. He's got his winnowing fork in his hand, and he's going to start in on separating out the wheat from the chaff. And there's going to be judgment or the opposite would be you repent and then you don't face the judgment. Okay? Now, as you hear what John's message is, you would naturally think when Jesus comes along, well, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized because Jesus doesn't have anything to repent of. Right? But look what happens. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, if you go on from here, you find that the rest of the book of Matthew is all about Jesus, the king. The king is the representative of the people. And that helps us to kind of understand what's going on with the baptism. When Jesus is baptized, he's identifying with the message 
that John is giving, but more than that, he's identifying with his people. So he says, just to give you the idea, this is Jesus functioning as the second Adam or the new Israel. Just like Adam represented all of the people that came from him and he falls into sin and so we all face judgment, now Jesus is going to act as the second Adam, the new Adam, and all of the people who are represented by him will be affected by Jesus and what he does the same way that we're affected by Adam. Because Adam was our head, now Jesus is our head in the new creation. Okay? So when, when John asks him, like, why would we do this? Like, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. Jesus says that this is to fulfill all righteousness. The word righteousness there, we tend to think of righteousness as um, doing good as opposed to doing evil. The word's actually bigger than that. It, it has to do with the idea of faithfulness or um, fidelity, particularly faithfulness to the covenant. And so what Jesus is saying is this is the way that God is going to be faithful to his covenant. This is the way that God's going to keep his promises. He's going to fulfill all righteousness by me identifying with all of those who repent so that I can be their representative. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's the second Adam. He's the new Israel. And so God says, this is my beloved son. Well, guess who else was called God's son? Adam is called God's son, Luke 3, 38. And the nation of Israel is called God's son. It's even quoted in Matthew, out of Egypt, I called my son. Right, so the nation of Israel, they go down into Egypt, into slavery, and then God calls them out of Egypt. Well, what happens to Jesus when Herod is trying to kill him? His parents take him and they flee to Egypt. And so out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is walking through the steps of being the new Israel. He's the second Adam. He's the new Israel. Adam was tempted in the garden and he fell. Israel was tempted when they were called out of Egypt and they failed. What happens right after Jesus' baptism? He's tempted. He goes out into the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus succeeds. And so he's not going to bring his people down into sin. He's going to be the one who's going to bring them out of it. Out of the slavery and death of sin. And so then, as you keep going, that's the beginning of chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. If you go to chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's right here. Get ready. Either repent or face judgment. And verse 23, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. That's Jesus' baptism. He's identifying as the head of his people. He's going to represent them. He's identifying through that message of repentance. Now, Christian baptism is different. It's related, but it's different because it comes after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. And <clears throat> here I'll probably try to start moving a little bit more quickly. Matthew chapter 28. These are probably familiar verses to you. We're going to look at the last couple of verses in the chapter. So after the Gospel of Matthew has gone through talking about Jesus as the king, we see them crucify their king. He rises from the dead and now he appears to his disciples. And this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. Verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's the instructions for Christian baptism. And this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. Notice that it's, it's Trinitarian, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay. And what's it connected to? There's a few key ideas that are there. Number one, conversion. The nations are bowing to the Trinitarian God of the Bible. They are converting. Okay, so an individual who was not following Jesus is now following Jesus. There's conversion. There's discipleship. When you, when you hear the word discipleship, think the word. Okay, being taught the word. Make disciples. Make disciples. So these are ones who are going to need to be taught, trained in the word. And obedience. What are you going to use the word to teach them to do? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's conversion, there's discipleship or the word, and there's obedience. And if you want one simple word to slap over the top of all three of those, lordship. It's embracing Jesus as Lord. It's stopping serving myself or anyone, whoever, whatever it was that I was serving. It's converting and now I'm serving Jesus. It's being discipled by the word so that I understand what it means to follow Jesus. And then it's doing it. It's obeying. It's following him. It's, it's submitting to his lordship. So if you want the one word to just kind of keep in your mind as you hear all of this this morning, it's lordship. It's lordship. They're identifying with Jesus in their baptism and accepting his lordship. Jesus says, how much authority is given to him? All authority. He is Lord. Next passage, Acts chapter 2. So go past the Gospels, Mark, Luke, John, to the book of Acts and look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He gives a, an explanation of, uh, of what has led to the crucifixion of Jesus, the idea that Jesus has died, he has risen again. And then you have this response that comes at the end of his message. Acts chapter 2, starting in well, let me, let me go back and read verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If I can just help you with those words, Lord and Christ. Christ is the word Messiah. It means king, the anointed one. So Jesus is the king 
Specifically, he's the king of the Jews and he's Lord. Now, who in the Roman world is Lord? Caesar. But Peter is saying, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So this baptism is, again, connected to conversion. Look at verse 38. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's all associated with conversion, with becoming a Christian. It's associated with discipleship and the word. Look at verse 41. Those who received his word, those are the ones who were baptized. And obedience, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And it goes on to describe how they now live differently because they're followers of Jesus. So again, they're identifying with Jesus and they are embracing his lordship, just like Peter said at the end of his message in verse 36. He has been made Lord. And those who believe that message and embrace it are those who are baptized. Now, here's the first aside that I want to give you. I said there was a couple of side notes I'll give you this morning. Here's one. Um, hopefully, in the time that you've spent in our church, you are clear on this, but I want to take the opportunity to clarify it again because it's not always clear, especially in our evangelical world. There is a difference between the approach that's known as easy believism and the approach that's known as lordship salvation. This was a big debate in Christian circles in the 80s, okay? Easy believism is the idea that what we need to do is get people to pray the prayer. And, and to be sincere, what happens after that doesn't really matter. I mean, it's important, but it's not determinant of their salvation. You know, if they, if they pray the prayer, if they come forward at the end of the service, if they make the commitment, but then they go on to live as if nothing changed, or maybe they change for, say, six months. They try really hard, but then they go back to their old life. Well, they prayed the prayer, so they're saved. No. Scripture nowhere teaches anything like that. What Scripture teaches is that those who are saved are those who have embraced the Lordship of Christ. And you can see that in the pattern that emerges even from these baptism passages. And so I want to be really clear on that. We, we talk about, sometimes you'll hear people refer to making Jesus your Lord and Savior as if those are two different things. It's fine to say that as if you, if you understand that that's the same thing. He, he's not your savior without being your Lord. That's not what scripture teaches. 
And so I want to be clear on that as we continue. All right, next passage, Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> this is a little longer. We're going to look at verses 34 to 48. Acts 10, 34 to, 30, to 48. And what's going on here is that as the gospel is going out from Jerusalem, it's going to the Jews. Now it's going to the Gentiles. Okay, that's the context here. Acts chapter 10, and let's start in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. All right. So the context is the gospel is now going out to the Gentiles, to all nations. This is baptism here. You see it's in the name of Jesus, just like the last passage. It's, it's not saying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are not contradictory. What I think you can draw from that, though, is there's no like, specific formula that needs to be said. There are some churches that believe you have to have, they call it trine, immersion you get dunked three times once for the father once for the son once for the holy spirit but you have passages like this that say baptized in the name of jesus and that's it so i think we shouldn't maybe make a big separation there we should see that all as one but again let me just draw out what's here and you're going to hopefully see the pattern conversion so verses 43 to 45 who is it that gets baptized it's everyone who believes in him and if you were to even flip the page over uh, to chapter 11, verse 18, as they're talking about this, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So who are the ones who are getting baptized? It's those who have repented and have eternal life. Okay, so conversion. There's also discipleship here. <clears throat> Verses 39 and 40, <clears throat> excuse me, the word is preached and it's the word about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection. Okay, so the baptism isn't happening apart from the preaching of the word. They're being discipled and taught about Jesus <clears throat> and what the significance of his death and resurrection is. 
and there's obedience. Uh, look at verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. He's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There's going to be a judgment. You need to be siding with Jesus. This is a commitment. <clears throat> He's the one who is, as Peter says in this passage, Lord of all. So there's this conversion, discipleship, obedience. Again, they're identifying with Jesus. They're accepting his lordship as Peter has proclaimed it. Next passage, Acts chapter 16. This is the story of the jailkeeper in the city of Philippi. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in jail. Okay. And Philippi is not an Israelite city. Okay, we're out in the broader Roman Empire now. Start in verse 25 with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He, he knows that that would be a, a, an easier way out than what the authorities will do to him if he has allowed them to escape. Okay? But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay. Now, again, <clears throat> same elements are here. Conversion. Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 34, he had believed, or a better translation, they had believed. And this is, by the way, there's a debate here. And our translation that I'm reading from, the ESV, is in the minority. Most translations would translate it something like this. And this is how Tom Nettles translates it. He said, and he rejoiced all of his house having believed in God. In other words, um, the original could be translated either way, but it's better to understand it as the whole household believed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been baptized. Sometimes um, this text is used to talk about household baptism or uh, infant baptism, but there's nothing in here that says anything about infants being baptized. We don't know that there were any youngsters in the family, and uh, it's a more natural translation and understanding to see it as he rejoiced all of his house having believed in God. And that would be consistent with everything that we've seen in the other passages, because who is it that is baptized? It's those who believed. It's those who believed, those who repented. So um, within this passage, you've got that in verse 31, and I think verse 34. There's also discipleship or the word because how did this come about? Verse 32. 
they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Okay, so everyone there is subject to the discipleship and to the word. And there's obedience. Now, they're identifying with Jesus. They're accepting his lordship. And you have to just understand the context here. In Philippi, who is Lord? Caesar. Okay, Caesar has exclusive rights to that title. So if the message is that Jesus is Lord and you identify with that message, in that world, you are making a very public, unsafe statement. Now, in our time today, it's not that dangerous of a thing to get baptized. Nobody's going to come to you, at least not at this point in our context, and persecute you because you got baptized. It's an easy thing. Which is why, and we'll come to this later, we as a church have leaned towards pushing that off after conversion in most cases until there's an established pattern of conversion and discipleship and obedience that's evident to all. Let me take my second side trip here at this point. Um, Lordship can also be seen in contrast to Gnosticism. Here's what I mean. Gnosticism is trying to escape the physical. It's this pursuit of the spiritual, and so it downplays the physical. But the lordship of Christ is over the whole person. It's holistic. It's not just uh, spiritual. It's not that Jesus is Lord in my heart. It's that Jesus is Lord, period, in my whole life. Not just my spiritual life, as if it doesn't have demands on every aspect of my life. Okay? If he's not Lord of all, <clears throat> then he's not Lord at all. Next passage, Colossians 2.12. We have this one and one more. Colossians 2.12. We're just kind of jumping in in the middle of this passage because this, this whole long section is actually very appropriate to this discussion. But just look at verse 12 for now. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. All right, so the context here, as we're... As Paul's writing to the Colossians, he's talking about what they have in Christ, the, the promises that have been given to them in Christ, all the blessings that they have in Christ. And baptism here is connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Very specifically, in a very focused way, baptism is connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's, in this greater passage, conversion, if you look at like verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. So there's conversion. You've been made alive. 
You were dead, now you're alive. There's discipleship. Really, it's like the whole book fits in this category of discipleship. But just for an example, look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Okay, so there's this teaching element, discipleship through the word that is involved. And obedience. Again, it's the whole, chap- the whole chapter, but look at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You need to be obedient. So the, the, the reception of Christ, the conversion, must inevitably flow out in obedience. Conversion, discipleship, and obedience. Lordship. Jesus is Lord. And it's tightly tied to the death and resurrection. We've seen that in the other passages as Peter was preaching. He's preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus. The very first one, where where Jesus is talking to his disciples, it comes right on the heels of his death and resurrection. Because of what just happened, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, last passage, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses because it all kind of hangs together here. It'll help to have the context. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So baptism here in this passage is very clearly an identification with Christ. Over and over, Paul is saying, you were buried with him. You're raised with him. You died with him. You'll be resurrected with him. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And your baptism is an identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. Buried, raised. 
So baptism is connected to conversion. Okay, verse 6, verse 7, the old self is crucified. Verse 13, you've been brought from death to life. It's discipleship. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self. Verse 9, we know that Christ. How do we know those things? It's the discipleship through the word that has led to us knowing those things. And there's obedience. Verse 4, walk in newness of life. Verses 11 to 14, consider yourselves dead to sin. Don't let sin reign. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. You are presenting yourself in complete submission to the Lord Jesus. It's lordship. You've died to yourself. You've been raised to new life in Christ. And so baptism is a picture of that. You are identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection and saying that that's what's happened to you. You have died to yourself. And you now live to him. You serve him. So it's an identifying with Jesus. It's accepting his lordship. So my third aside is this. <clears throat> this is God's plan for the world. When God created the world, the world was in perfect submission and to his lordship. Sin has ruined that. But God's activity in the world is such that he is going to bring everything into submission to his lordship. And when you, as an individual, submit to his lordship, when you die to yourself, when you repent of your sins, when there's conversion and there's discipleship, you're being taught by him and there's obedience, you're walking with him, you're part of the story. What he's doing in you is what he's doing in the world. It's part of the process and it's going to happen. It's not going to fail. He's going to bring all things into submission to himself. And so your baptism is a public picture of the inner reality, which is one tiny part of the story of what God is doing in the world. And the lordship that he is exercising is over everything, all authority. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So what does, what's the pattern that accompanies baptism? Conversion, discipleship, obedience, lordship. It pictures the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's our identification with him. So there's some implications of that. How do we do baptism? Different churches do baptism in different ways. We practice baptism by immersion. Why? What we've seen this morning. What does baptism picture? The death and resurrection of Jesus. 
The word means immerse. Going under the waters is that picture of death and coming up again is the picture of life. You're raised to this newness of life that you can walk now in newness of life following your Lord Jesus. Who should be baptized? Well, think about what we saw. Conversion. It should be believers. Discipleship. Who've been taught by the word. Obedience. And whose lives show submission to Jesus. So believers who've been taught by the word and whose lives show submission to Jesus. In other words, those who are making a mature commitment publicly, supported by the testimony of the church. But when you think through what you see in scripture, here's the difference. There are, there are some who insist on baptism being instantaneous at conversion. And oftentimes what they're really saying is that conversion is not complete. Salvation is not complete until baptism happens. That's not what scripture teaches. Now, is it true that baptism seemed to happen pretty quickly after conversion in the pages of scripture? Yes, it is. Definitely, that's the pattern. But why? Because it was a dangerous thing to do. This is not a commitment that you made lightly. This was not a Christian world. This was not Christendom. This was a pagan world with a different Lord. And when you made the public statement to say <clears throat> that Jesus is Lord, you could be signing your own death warrant. The same thing would be true today, for instance, in many Muslim countries. If somebody hears the gospel, says, I repent, I believe, I want to follow Jesus, and they want to be publicly baptized in that setting, there's probably not any real need to wait because that commitment is a serious and significant commitment because of the context they're in. But we have this, <clears throat> I'll call it a disadvantage. It's really a blessing, but in this sense, it's a disadvantage that yeah, baptism can just happen in our context. Go ahead. Nobody's going to do anything to you because you were baptized in our context. Which is why we end up with a lot of people who go through the motions of saying they embrace Jesus as Lord, getting baptized, but their life doesn't show the fruit that Jesus says will be there for anyone who's truly saved. And so we've said as a church, we're going to encourage people to wait until they're ready to make a mature commitment. We didn't put an age on it. So <clears throat> I'll say this as we have a number of teens here. Some of you are closing in on adult age. Some of you are maybe ready to make a mature adult commitment. Some of you are not. Don't hear anything that I'm saying as in any way pushing or pressuring you to, to make some public statement that you're not absolutely 100% maturely committed and ready to make. <clears throat> that's not what we're saying. But if you're sitting there and you're saying, that's me. I've been converted. I've embraced Jesus as Lord. 
<clears throat> I, I'm being discipled. I'm embracing the teaching. And I'm walking with him. Not perfectly, but I'm walking with him. Then I would encourage you, talk to your parents. Ask them. They'll help you through this. And then if, that, if your parents say, yeah, this would be a good thing, we believe, then we'll come talk to the elders and we'll say, do we as a church see those kinds of characteristics and growth so that we can, as a church, put our testimony on it and say, yes, we believe this person is a follower of Jesus. There are three different categories <clears throat> that people might fall in hearing this this morning. One would be someone who has not been baptized and has not converted, has not made a commitment to Christ. And if that's you, then I would say, consider the message of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, what this picture of baptism is all about, and recognize that you need to repent of your sins and to embrace Jesus as Lord. The second category of person might be someone who has been converted, truly is a believer, but has not yet been baptized. And if that's you, <clears throat> then consider being baptized. And if, you're, if, if the person in that category is a child, then you, that needs to be in submission to your parents as well. A third category of person that might be here this morning is those who have been baptized and have made that public commitment. And so the call to you this morning is, of course, not to be baptized because you have been. But the call to you would be to consider what baptism represents and to reflect on your baptism with gratitude for the grace of God that has been shown to you. And maybe even a renewed commitment to discipleship and obedience. Out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you in his death and resurrection. Baptism will not save you. Baptism is a picture. But it's a picture that is so closely associated with the thing that it represents that it becomes this fantastic picture of death and resurrection. It embodies what Jesus calls us to. Let's close our time together this morning in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this picture that you've given us of baptism. I thank you for the privilege that it has been even to participate in the baptism of many who are sitting here, who have made that public commitment, who said, yes, <clears throat> I'm dying to myself and I'm embracing Jesus as Lord. I want to be discipled and I want to obey him. And for those who maybe have made that commitment and haven't taken that step of baptism, I pray that you would give them the wisdom and discernment to understand if that step is appropriate for them right now. And for those who are here who maybe have never experienced that conversion, who have not committed to Christ, I pray that you would help them to see, first of all, their need for a Savior, but then also to see the glory of the Lord Jesus who died in our place and rose again for our salvation. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name.